Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. More gun violence. We're hearing at least five people were shot. This gunman opened fire. Another incident of gun violence. Six people dead. Mass shooting. Talking about gun violence can feel repetitive. Conversations about solutions go round and round and round. But every day, communities are reminded they can't ignore the reality of gun violence. Police in Sacramento, section of Dallas. Here in Highland Park. Big cities all across America witnessing these increasing gun violence. We are sick and tired of reading headlines about crime. I'm Fami Redwood, and you're listening to Beyond Black History Month the podcast that tells important stories about the Black community all year long. Today, I want to look at one possible solution to gun violence. This solution is rarely talked about, nor is it well-funded, but it could be more successful than anything we've seen on a large scale. And when I say successful, I mean able to save lives. Gun violence is a massive problem. Let's look at New York City, which is like so many other urban areas. Homicides are declining, but shootings are up. And while we are certainly nowhere near what we saw in the 80s and 90s, the increase of shootings make people feel as if crime is worse now than it was back then. There were more gunshots. One shot at our detective. Subway shooting that wounded 10 people. Subways are not safe. Buses are not we safe. We have a sea of violence in our city and country. After trending downward for over a decade, shootings doubled between 2018 and 2021. And despite anti-gun units going after the trigger pullers, shootings are still happening and they disproportionately affect black communities. A new CDC report shows black folks are four times more likely to be killed by a gun compared to the overall population. Putting aside all the systemic racism that helped create this problem, black folks need a solution. And after decades of failed policies, some community members are taking matters into their own hands. Some of the people that once caused that violence are now dedicating their lives to stopping it. We had a fish fry and a barbecue out front. That's Lawrence Brown. He's a program manager at the Bed-Stuy Brooklyn location of Save Our Streets or SOS. So we have a line of people, like we have them lined up and some, um, very known people from the uh, from the neighborhood. They they wasn't particularly like still here, but they encountered each other, mm-hmm. and they had uh, historic beef. 
you know, we identified the situation and, you know, we was able to grab one and grab the other. And, and it was like, you know, we got something going on. But it was like an on-site situation, meaning like they don't care. Like when they recognize whose organization it was and the individual speaking to them, he got mediated on the spot because they didn't want they, they didn't want to feel like they was violating us. What Lawrence is describing is called violence interruption. Talking about a historic beef that was about 20-something years old. Just to get, show us that type of respect, they deaded it on the spot, on the strength of us. You're probably wondering, how did these guys with decades of bad blood just squash their beef? And why do they have so much respect for Lawrence and SOS? We're going to answer that. But first, what exactly is violence interruption? So there's a, a lot of confusing language around this. That's Dr. Jeffrey Butts. He's the director of the Research and Evaluation Center at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He studies violence interruption. Sometimes people do use the phrase violence interruption as a catch-all, or they say community-based violence intervention. Some people use the term cure violence. Cities nationwide have various forms of these initiatives, but while these organizations have different approaches, they're often grouped under one umbrella term. But that doesn't mean they're all the same. Some groups focus on the intersection of gun and intimate partner violence. Others implement activities for kids to keep them away from crime. But the rarest of these initiatives involve workers taking to the streets to stop gun violence in its tracks. These are called violence interrupters. Being on the ground to stop violence right then and there is essential to the SOS approach. SOS is a part of Neighbors in Action, which is part of the New York City Crisis Management System. Haley Nolasco is a director of the Community-Based Violence Prevention at the Center for Court Innovation. The center runs SOS programs in Brooklyn and South Bronx. SOS team members physically go to assigned areas. They interact with community members and intervene in conflicts. Haley says unlike police, SOS has a certain amount of credibility in the community. So everyone that works at SOS is a credible messenger, somebody that's valued and respected, and somebody that can mediate and de-escalate violence in their communities. They're known in their communities, and they may be known in their communities for a, a host of different reasons, but some of those reasons being that they have a lot of respect in their communities, whether it be because of a past life that they, you know, they had and they trans, you know, transformed their behaviors to like come out and be positive change agents in their communities. Prevention is key to the mission. Instead of reacting to violence after it happens, SOS mediates conflicts before escalation. You know, they do a community canvas. They speak to people. They're engaging with people who are most at risk of either being harmed by violence or creating violence. And they're going out there without, you know, any any weapons or vests. Like no one has that, and they're trained. They're trained to do so. Like so, not only do they have their lived experiences, they have training that's been offered to them. SOS violence interrupters work in targeted areas they call. Looking at one specific catchment in Bed-Stuy. There was a shooting in April, then in May, but prior to that, there hadn't been a shooting there in 209 days. So we walk these catchments, we stand, we engage with the community. That's AZ Patterson, a violence interrupter at SOS Bed-Stuy. This is our community and we're here for one another. AZ wasn't always trying to stop gun violence. I used to be part of the problem. I did seven years. I was incarcerated for playing around on these streets. I've been here three years strong. And that's what makes SOS so strong and so different. Many of its credible messengers were formerly incarcerated or participated in street crime. But it's also people that are from the community as well. So like, although many 
staff may have been formerly incarcerated. There's also staff that are still credible in their own right without having to be formally incarcerated that can go out in community and have people listen to them. SOS workers with criminal records show it's possible to redefine your place in a community. For me to transform transform from, from that to this and be helpful in my community is a blessing. Having a history running the streets doesn't just give SOS cred. It gives them a deeper understanding of what methods will work best in mediating. I don't have no problem interacting with a situation because I know what it's like. They can also paint a clear picture of what happens when you get involved with violence. We, we know the consequences all so well. Lawrence did 17 years in prison for a violent crime, so he gets it. And that understanding adds to the trust factor that SOS established. We do something different that traditional forms of, like, public safety can't really do, right? So there's places that traditional law enforcement aren't able to navigate or maneuver because... When you're in law enforcement, there's apprehension, there's historic mistrust. But when you have credible messengers and organizations like SOS, you have people that are from the community, look like the community, and value and care and love the communities. SOS isn't just preventing violence. They also do restorative justice when they connect people considered at risk with new opportunities which is why the group tries to turn people they've helped into team members. Like Naira McLean, a 21-year-old who started working for SOS in 2019. I work with younger youths, you know, contact them about, you know, mental health, anything that they're going through with, just to keep in touch with them. Understanding the impact of gun violence is critical for people around Naira's age. Before 2020, car crashes were the leading cause of death for kids and young adults. But a CDC report found that guns are now the number one killer for Americans ages 1 through 24. Seeing someone like Nairera go from being at risk to becoming a support system is inspiring. Even seeing them now work in this position where they're putting so much positivity into their community, they're also like mentors or people that, you know, positive change agents that other people can look up to, their peers, younger kids. People who've gone to prison or jail understand how programs like SOS could have kept them out of trouble. We definitely didn't have, you know, anybody out in the streets that was, you know, leading the way, you know, telling us the right things to do. That's Kashim Harper, another SOS employee. It would have definitely been helpful because it would have helped guided me and navigated me into the right direction because that was something that I definitely didn't have. For Kashim, he saw an opportunity to turn his punishment into a career path. I actually learned about this program when I was actually incarcerated and I felt like, you know, this would be something that I would definitely want to be a part of because I was, you know, I was kind of doing some of the work while I was in prison, you know, mediating situations. So when I did hear about the program, I was like, yeah, that was definitely something I was going to be getting involved in. Positive representation coming from within the neighborhood is vital to making change. That consistent presence is one of the keys to steering people away from violence. When they're out in the community and they're canvassing, they're letting people know, like, I see you. I was once you. Right. And because of that, they're able to they see them every day. It's not just that SOS workers are on the ground, cops are there too. But let's be real, police interactions come with a completely different dynamic, one that has an authoritative and power aspect to it. SOS, on the other hand, connections are made by engaging in non-threatening conversations. So it's, again, building that trust every day, canvassing, speaking to people, having a constant positive interaction so that, unfortunately, at the time does come where 
there needs to be some level of mediation or interaction that they already know that individual so they're able to pull them back. Lawrence is a program manager now, but he used to be a violence interrupter. Like, I had a youth that had got arrested, and so I escorted him to court. Lawrence was able to speak to this person's accomplishments, like how they had just gotten their GED and that they were engaged with SOS. He was released because of that, because he's part of our organization. In theory, violence interruption sounds like a great method, especially at a time when some are calling for alternatives to traditional policing. But what does the data show? Are these programs making measurable strides? For that, we return to Dr. Butts. The research on these programs, I would call it developing and forming. So far, what we know is that it's a promising approach where we find sometimes positive effects from implementing these programs. One of the most well-known anti-violence programs is Cure Violence. It was founded by an epidemiologist, Dr. Gary Slutkin, back in 2000. The theory behind Cure Violence is that violence spreads from person to person, much like an epidemic. People learn to be violent by seeing violence, by watching other people be violent. Dr. Slutkin is credited as one of the pioneers of violence interruption. In the 90s, when working as a doctor in Chicago, he noticed that street shootings spread like viruses. And especially in America, where we have hundreds of millions of guns in circulation, it's natural for people to have a gun in their pocket if they're afraid of violence or concerned that someone could be violent against them. So the cure violence model says if all this passes from person to person, we have to intervene much like an epidemic. You have to go to each source and try to stop the transmission. That means changing the way communities respond to violence. That means talking to the people most likely to be involved in violence. And in America, again, with so many guns, that means talking to people who live in communities with high rates of gun violence, predominantly talking to young men and trying to get them to think about solving their conflicts and disputes in a different way than using guns or using violence. Many anti-violence programs are implementing the strategies that Cure Violence pioneered. Researchers have a hard time studying community initiatives that reduce violence. That's because the initiatives are being done by smaller organizations unique to the area they operate in. They implement different protocols and procedures which means you can't evaluate the model. There is no model. Between 2013 and 2017, John Jay conducted a quasi-experimental evaluation of the cure violence approach in New York City. Researchers measured shootings and gun injuries in two neighborhoods with cure violence programs. Then they compared those findings with similar areas. The analysis found a statistically significant break in violent injuries in the cure areas compared to the areas that did not have the program. Data shows cure contributed to an average 40% reduction in shootings. In the other areas, there was only a 31% decline. But not all data points in favor of these programs. A 2022 analysis looked at the impact of St. Louis's Cure Violence program. That program was rolled out in 2020. Like the John Jay evaluation, researchers looked at neighborhoods with Cure Violence sites along with similar areas without a presence. They didn't find any significant decrease in homicides and gun assaults in the Cure Violence neighborhoods compared to the areas that didn't have the program. But again, part of the problem collecting reliable data is not all programs programs are run the same. And that leads to one of the biggest challenges in this field, which is we talk about these programs as if they're organized 
and we can know whether they're working or not. It's also important to consider that most violence interruption programs don't have the bandwidth to cover a whole neighborhood. A neighborhood that's small enough to have maybe 5,000 residents, that's about the right size for intervention. But in a neighborhood of 5,000 people, it's rare to have a whole lot of shootings, thankfully, which means only a couple shootings might happen in a given year. Preventing only a few shootings each year doesn't sound like a lot. However, so if the shootings go from three to two, that's one shooting you've averted. And some people might think that's trivial. But if we monetize that, turn it into dollars, avoiding one shooting could save the people in that neighborhood easily a half a million dollars in medical care, lost wages, all the, the ripple effect of a shooting is very expensive. That overall impact is hard to quickly measure. It's really hard to have the monetization of your reduction in violence be your major outcome, because that means it takes a while. It also means no single agency benefits from it or no single family benefits from it. It's dispersed through the neighborhood, so it's hard to get people's attention. One big problem, these groups are not getting enough research funding. Funders over time historically have funded police research far more than community-based violence research. And you ask someone, where's the evidence for violence prevention? And some graduate student is assigned to go in and search the literature. They come back with all these policing studies. But that doesn't mean policing is the best way to reduce violence. It's just the way that's most often researched. Speaking of police, it's difficult to establish a relationship that works for both the cops and the individual organizations. The issue is anytime you're asking police and communities to collaborate, it's really hard for the police to resist their natural inclination to dominate the conversation. The way I refer to that is police always worry about their market share when it comes to understanding and solving the crime problem. They like to be identified as the solution. And it's hard for them to set aside their own parochial interests for themselves and to work honestly with communities and even take the back row take the back seat. It's rare to see that. To keep the trust that groups like SOS have established, they have to be very careful when working with police. Which is a challenge because police want to know what's going on in the neighborhood and they will complain if they hear that some violence interrupter knew about a conflict that was brewing. It turned deadly. Someone shot another person and the violence interrupter organization kind of knew about it in advance and said nothing. Experts say to really stop violence on a wider scale, we need to tackle the root causes. Jobs don't pay a living wage. We have a mental health crisis. Schools are underfunded. Housing remains an issue, as does substance abuse. The list goes on. We know that if you grow up in a neighborhood where the schools are horrible, you can't count where your next meal is coming from. People are sleeping on each other's couches. That's a problem you have to fix with something other than community-based violence prevention and policing. You need to address those basic social inequities that generate violence. So what's next for violence prevention programs? Many politicians are beginning to include them in their spending plans, and violence interruption has come into the national conversation as a solution. I hope the community-based movement recognizes that. Right now, they're doing great with political argument and rhetoric and campaigning. The White House, our president, pronounced these programs as effective when he was here in New York. I've asked the Congress to provide $200 million to invest in community violence intervention programs as well. They work. They work. work. 
One act of violence can change an entire community. And for the sake of so many communities who deal with violence on a regular basis, I hope investments continue because everyone deserves to feel safe. Thanks for listening to Beyond Black History Month. If you're enjoying our series, please subscribe to our podcast. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the Odyssey app. Also, please rate and review our podcast. It helps us in the podcast rankings. Beyond Black History Month is a special production of 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to producers Dempsey Pilot, Jill Webb, who wrote and produced this episode, Cooper Mole, who provided editorial support, Andy Egan Thorpe, who's our audio engineer, Tim Schout is the WCBS News Radio 880 brand manager, Ben Meverack is the 1010 Wins brand manager, and I'm Femi Redwood. Thanks for listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. 